Hello, and welcome to Quest, a vineyard church where we experience life as friends with faith through encountering God, loving others, and making a difference in our community. If you're new, there will be information at the end of this podcast where you can plug into Quest in person or online. Now let's dive into this week's teaching. I have the privilege of welcoming Tori this morning. She's going to preach for us. It's a really special message. And um, so help me welcome Tori. She's our new children's pastor here at Quest. Good morning. It's so good to be with you all today. Before I dive into this sermon, I just want to take a quick minute to um, pass along a special invitation to the dads of daughters out there today. Um, Coming up on Friday, November 9th, we're going to be having a father-daughter dance and celebration. And I have to tell you that it is going to be a really, really special night. Um, We're always busy and there's things are going on. This night is about just carving a little time out of the schedule to celebrate and honor our daughters for who they are and the way that God made them. And uh, my own dad is actually coming in from out of town for the sole purpose of co-hosting this event with me. So, um, yeah, dads, you should come. You should invite your friends, your neighbors, because it's going to be a whole lot of fun. And uh, I should say, too, there's more information about the event on the website, but I just want to point out as a huge personal favor to me, if you know that you're coming, please do RSVP. You can send me an email to Tori, T-O-R-I, at gotoquest.org. And what that's going to do is I'm going to make Make sure that I have enough prepared for all of the little girls that are coming, which is very important. <clears throat> I am so happy to be here with all of you today. I've been at Quest for nearly two months now, and I've cherished every opportunity I've had to share in and unpack and experience the great heart that really beats through this place. Most Sunday mornings, I'm back in the kids' rooms, and I have to tell you, our kids are a compassionate lot. I've seen little kids on their first Sunday here share about what's happening in their lives and offer to pray for the class, and I think that's courageous. I've also seen kids who have been here nearly every Sunday their entire lives reach out in kindness and gentleness to their peers who are a little less comfortable being away from their parents. These young leaders make class a safe space to speak up in, And it fills me with hope for the experiences that they're going to have with God here on Sunday mornings and also when they're at home and when they're at school. And that is a very special thing. In a lot of ways, I think our kids model what it is to give and to receive care in a healthy way. And I actually think that's something that becomes a lot more difficult for many of us in adulthood. A few summers ago, I was in the middle of a lot of personal transitions. I was living in Connecticut and about halfway through graduate school. I was in the middle of a job transition. I was coping with a breakup. And around that time where all these personal things were colliding, I found out that my beautiful, cheap apartment was being sold and I needed to move. After a lot of headaches and by God's grace, I found a good place to move to. But there was a small gap between when I needed to leave my old home and when I could go to my new home. My nearest family member lived 700 miles away, but I had lots of friends and lots of friends with spare couches and bedrooms and that kind of thing. However, as it so happened, the dates that I needed housing coincided with a really, really big conference. And 
all of my friends had graciously invited their out-of-town friends and the conference's international guests into their homes. All of them. And because of that, I literally found myself without a place to put my head down. And now I should be clear, I was an educated, well-networked graduate student in New Haven, Connecticut, which is to say, though I couldn't quite afford a, a week's worth of hotel or Airbnb for the week that I found myself without a home, I certainly wasn't destitute. At no, there was a zero percent chance that I was ever going to have to sleep in my car. I had a lot of social capital, and though all of my friends' homes were full, if I had turned up on any one of two dozen different doorstops and said, hey, crazy story, but I, I actually need a place to crash tonight. Can I inflate my borrowed air mattress in your living room? Every single one of them would have said yes without hesitation, and they would have offered me dinner. But the truth is, Actually saying those words, hey, can I crash here? Knowing that there was a real cost to my friends who were already overextended, that was really hard to do. A lot of times we talk and we think about hospitality as giving out of our abundance. The host who, from her full Thanksgiving table, invites an acquaintance without a place to go. And you know what? That's really good. God bless that. We should do that. But the truth is that hospitality's demands go much deeper than giving out of our abundance. It costs the person who comes to the table too. Giving and receiving care is tough, exhausting work, and it's tricky business. But it's also something that Jesus, over and over and over again, turns our attention to in the Gospels. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, you are a God who never leaves us, a God whose presence touches our hearts and touches our community and changes our lives. Prepare our hearts, minds, and bodies today as we prepare to meet with you. Amen. Today I want to turn our attention to an old story at the beginning of Mark's gospel, and I want to do so thinking about what it is to give and receive care. And in so doing, my hope is that we will be able to see the often arduous, tedious, thankless, dirty work that is caregiving and care receiving as mighty acts, central to Jesus's mission when he was on earth and as followers of Jesus, central to ours. I hope that we will see caregiving and care receiving for the deeply intimate and personal work that it is, but that we'll also understand how it changes the social and spiritual landscape around us, and it changes it for the better. Because everything in the kingdom of God touches inside and out. So let's turn to the text. It's Mark 2, beginning with verse 1. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. So many gathered that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four of them. Since they could not get to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus and, after digging through it, lowered the mat the paralyzed man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts, and he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? 
Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, walked out in full view of all of them. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. This story is one that frequently makes its way into children's classrooms. I suspect because of the physicality and the drama is so intense. In just a few short verses, we, the reader, become wrapped in a moment of conflict and, and as it resolves, miracle. Stories like these are typical to the book of Mark, which talks about Jesus' time on earth in direct, candid way that I have a real appreciation for. The stories in Mark are full but without any dawdling around. In some ways, this story feels a lot like a hundred other stories of healing in the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which all give us accounts of Jesus' life. Jesus healed people. Over and over again, he healed people. But you know what else? His followers healed people. It is because of Jesus and his followers and the example we have here in Scripture that we actually believe in praying that God would heal people too. But involved in this scene, the one that we looked at today in the text, are Jesus, the crowd, the paralytic, and the people that brought him to see Jesus. To understand this text, I'm going to challenge us to see the scene from the vantage point of the crowd, the paralytic, and the people that brought him to Jesus. Reading a text from different perspectives uh, and from different characters helps us understand the complexity of the scene. That there wasn't a single monolithic experience of what was happening. It also, for the sake of the ways that we're talking about caregiving and care receiving today, demonstrate how what's happening in individual hearts and bodies is inherently connected to the community. So first, the crowd. In this scene, Jesus is talking to a crowd. And the crowd was there because they knew who Jesus was. Verse 1 says, a few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum. And that means that he had already been there. Chapter 1 of Mark, which we didn't read today, but immediately precedes the part that we did, tells us the last time Jesus was in Capernaum, he healed tons of people. Now, some time passed between Jesus' visit in Mark 2 and his visit in Mark 1. Now, during that time, surely word of Jesus's healing work had spread in the community because that's the kind of thing people like to talk about. The people who Jesus healed talked. The people who had seen the healings talked. There were skeptics and politician and spin. The version of the story that got repeated by school children and the ones that parents discussed in bed at night. There were people these stories would bring immeasurable hope to and people who felt threatened. All of this, which is quite a lot, lingered in the background as Jesus talked to the crowd in Mark 2. People were crowded around the door, eager to see what Jesus would do now, possibly even hoping to be noticed by him. I suspect that many, though not all, were moved and encouraged by what they saw Jesus do and say. I bet money drunk in his words of life like a man in the desert who had finally found a well. I bet they felt loved and convicted and ready to follow Jesus to the ends of the earth. 
They listened to the good news of God's rule and kingdom, God's hope for humanity and all creation, hope that extends over sickness and death. You know, like the kind of sickness deeply and immediately apparent when a paralytic is ushered in behind you in a clear and desperate attempt to get to Jesus. But the crowd didn't recognize this. This is heartbreaking, but I don't really know if it's all that surprising. Because in case you haven't noticed, crowds have weird dynamics. They follow certain social norms. People become protective of their place in line or on the train. A few years ago, I was meeting some friends to go see a play. And to be honest, I don't even remember which one it was. But it was, it was Shakespeare in the Park. And I was the first person there. So noting the places on the ground where they had mapped out where here's where you can put your blankets and here's where you can put your chairs. I took the biggest square footage that I could in preparation for my friends to come. And when the first family arrived, we scooted our blankets around in order to secure a slightly better place for kids to be able to see. And as we were doing that, I said out loud, oh, but if we move over here, we're going to like lose this space. And a stranger who was on the ground in front of me without any kindness in his voice, who was in the process of claiming the spot that we had not yet vacated, kind of grunted and said, it's not your space anyway, as if to say it was actually his in this public park. Now, the guy at the park wasn't being very kind to me, but the truth is that kind of protectiveness of space is how crowds behave. I think we see another interesting dimension of crowd behavior in verse 6. After the paralyzed man is lowered to Jesus, Jesus forgives his sins. And as some of the teachers of the law sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Clearly, the people in the crowd having these thoughts were incredulous. But note that they were thinking to themselves. They didn't say out loud. They didn't interrupt. They weren't even whispering among themselves. That's the kind of line-towing and norm-keeping. And it's exactly the kind of behavior you would expect from people in a crowd. The unexpected part is that Jesus calls them out on it. Although, given the strength of their surprise and criticism, calling what Jesus doing blasphemous, which is a pretty big claim to be making, Jesus' response is surprisingly calm. Why are you thinking these things, he says? Jesus asks a question, which is something that Jesus actually does quite often. Is forgiving sins easier than healing a man, he says. And that is a great line. He's tripping up the thinkers, not in a way that makes them feel stupid or embarrassed. He's challenging them in a way that probes their hearts and their minds. Surely these teachers of the law have at least heard, if not seen, the healing of bodies before. That's the kind of thing that pops up all over the New Testament. But the forgiveness of sins, that's a God and a God alone kind of thing. By forgiving the paralytic before healing, Jesus shows that the man's paralysis is not a result of his sin. I also love that Jesus forgives the sin before he heals the body because I feel like if the body had been healed first, the crowd might not have paid attention to the forgiving part. Because the sin-forgiving part is, is not seen with two eyes, but the physical healing part is. 
In doing this, I feel like God is turning the crowd's attention toward the relationship between the inside and the outside. I think he's showing that healing and wholeness is deep, personal, intimate, remembering for one's heart, but also for one's body. But we'll come back to the crowd at the end. The paralytic. The paralytic man is carried by four people and accompanied by others and is brought to a house that's so crowded. People are gathered outside the door, leaning in, listening, straining, whispering, trying to catch everything that's happening in the main room. What a scene for a man who might not have even been able to lift his head up off the mat that he was being carried on. I wonder how much of a chance the paralytic got to get out of his own home or away from the street where his family lived. There was no ADA, contemporary wheelchair, social security, or disability. It's very likely that this man was fully and completely dependent on the kindness and generosity of family, friends, and strangers. It's quite likely that the personal independence isn't anything that he had any living notion of, at least not anymore. Because what we also don't know is how the paralytic was injured. Whether he was born that way or if it was something that happened to him in childhood. Or if there was an accident that happened to him as an adult. It is easy to imagine that he might be bitter. Sour that he was dealt a poor hand in life. Or resentful about the incident that robbed him of his mobility. And the life he had intended on living. It's, it's possible that the paralytic didn't even consent to be making the trip. Though unwillingly or with every fiber of his being, longing and aching to go and see Jesus. It's a trip that had to have been made in humility. Earlier, I described what it was like for me to fess up to my friends that because of a series of bizarre and short-term circumstances, I found myself homeless. That was really hard to do. But to a large degree, it was also hidden. The people who I finally emailed and directly said, I don't have a place to go. They knew the truth, and so did a couple other people who were close to me. However, by and large, my housing crisis passed quietly. But there's nothing quiet about pushing your way through a crowd. And by the way, let us consider, how does a paralytic man get to the roof where his friends dug the hole? I suppose there could have been a set of stairs, but paralytics can't exactly climb a ladder or jump a wall or reach up to be drug up by their hands. His body had to have been hoisted up in a creative way. And I imagine whatever it was, it wasn't easy, comfortable, or for that matter, safe. Once on the roof, the paralytic lay immobile while others dug through its earthen material so that he could get to Jesus. You can almost feel the small clumps of dirt landing on the face of the paralytic. And as they do, the man just lies there waiting, straining his ears to hear Jesus, heart beating in its throat, stomach churning in anticipation for what might happen next. Though the paralytic did nothing himself, he contrasts with the teachers of the law who were in the crowd because both the paralytic and his friends are not thinking to themselves, they are disruptive. While Jesus is talking, they are destroying the building that Jesus is in, which is something that people notice. I doubt you can dig up an earthen roof without having some pieces fall down. And in this case, that means dirt was falling on people's heads. Making a hole in the roof brings in sunlight 
It makes noise. People see that you are coming. Some had to have pointed at it. Others quit listening to Jesus and just watched the scene. Some judged. Some waited in anticipation. How would Jesus handle these line cutters? Who are these attention-seeking people taking away from our collective experience of the God-man Jesus? A few years ago, while I was in divinity school, there was this speaker that came to address us. And this speaker was making giant waves in the world and in the church. So the night that he came to Yale, everybody came out. I pulled into the parking lot and grabbed one of the final spots, which surprised me because I had never in my life seen anything before that got grad students to come to an event early. When I walked inside, I was greeted by an unsympathetic usher who informed me that the chapel was full and that if I wanted to see the talk, I was going to have to go to the overflow room. I was kind of mad about that because I wanted to be in the room, not watching from afar. So I slunk into my overflow room seat and texted the friend that I was supposed to be meeting in the chapel. That friend was Thomas, who's now my husband, but at the time he was just the guy that sat next to me in systematics. He wrote back, he said, I know it's full, but I was let in just as the last seats were being taken and they were trying to shuffle us out of the building to the overflow room when we noticed um, the stairs going to the balcony. Now you should know that the balcony of the chapel at Yale Divinity School is very beautiful, but it's an AV area. In other words, not a space that we're supposed to be. But with a kind smile, Thomas slipped past the AV crew who didn't seem to mind his presence, grabbed a couple rogue chairs in the corner, leaned over the top of the balcony, and listened in. Having heard that that's what he did, I flew out of the overflow room, ran out of the building, went around the back, used my ID to swipe into a part, uh, a stairwell that's not commonly used, and marched up to the balcony like I owned the place. And once I was there, I kind of smiled at the AV people and slid past them uh, in kind of a permission-giving sort of way. And I took my seat next to Thomas and his roommate. I always feel like when I read the story we're talking about in Mark 2, and I think about the paralytic, I think of that story when we were just doing everything we could to get into the room. I feel like if instead of simply going to the balcony and then quietly listening to what had happened, if we had brought with us a body and then disruptively lowered it over the room, as if to insist that the speaker and the resource crowd care for our injured friend, it might have been something like the scene that played out in Mark 2, when the paralytic was lowered from the roof. The paralytic man got where he got because of the people that brought him. The text says in verse 3 that some men came. And it says men just because of the way NIV handles translation. The truth is that some people came. And we don't know whether they were men or women. We just know that they were there. And that among them, four of them carried the paralytic. Now, we don't know where these people came from or how long they had carried him. Maybe there was more than four because they had to go a great distance and they needed to rotate who was carrying the friend. Uh, maybe they came together because they were the folks responsible for the paralytic's daily care. We don't know whether they were educated, if they had seen Jesus speak before, or if they were people who didn't have a penny to their names. What would motivate these people to bring the paralytic to Jesus? 
What would cause them to fully ignore social norms and to go so far as to physically destroy someone's house to get their friend to Jesus? What they were doing was exceedingly public. I imagine that the sun people that carried the paralytic man as they headed to Jesus, that they got strength from each other, that there was kind of a, I'm in, are you in, right? We're doing this together because that really helps when you're in a norm breaking situation. This past spring, a good friend of mine was having a huge party in celebration of his 40th birthday and finishing his Old Testament PhD. Because 40 is a bit of an important number in the Old Testament, and because he was turning 40, a few friends and I planned this really clever, incredibly funny, and nerdy inside joke to do at the party. But for the joke to work, we needed to do a brief demonstration at the party. The thing was, though, despite my excitement about how awesome this joke was going to be, and the fact that I knew our friend, who the party wasn't on it, was, was going to love it, I lost my nerve to do it because even though our friend was going to love it, I couldn't bring myself to make a fool of myself in front of everyone else there. I completely chickened out because breaking norms is hard. And that was nothing but one one one-hundredth thousandth of what the people who carried the paralytic to Jesus went through when they were breaking norms. They pushed through the crowd, hoisted him to the roof, dug through it, lowered the man, and then presumably either listened to what Jesus was doing from the crumbling roof or jumped down to the floor to sit with their friend, the paralytic at Jesus' feet. If they were business people or tradesmen, this reckless behavior could cost them their business because their reputations were on the line. They put their ability to care for their own families on their line in a desperate attempt to get this man to Jesus. It's no wonder that Jesus saw their faith when he forgave the paralytic sins and healed him. The work that we see done by the people that brought the paralytic to Jesus is hard work. But I think it's safe to say that the work we see in this passage is just one small bit of the work that was being done on his behalf. These people, and quite possibly others, were the man's caregivers. His life literally depended on them. In this scene, but also in the providing of financial support, food, conversation, friendship, attending to the needs of his body. Caregiving often includes these kinds of things. Caregivers run busy homes. They are responsible for administering medication, picking medication up, working extra shifts, keeping the house clean, cooking meals, watching the kids, making the phone calls, fighting with insurance, and a hundred other things. Because of it, they sometimes miss important events. And when you finally get a conversation with them, it is interrupted by children tugging on pant legs and emergency texts. And not infrequently, it accompanies tasks like folding laundry and washing dishes. There is a mundane order to it. And along the way, the bodies and health of caregivers themselves usually suffer because they give sacrificially rising early and going to bed late on account of needs that exceed their own in urgency. They do it out of love and desperation. They do it clinging to hope, and sometimes they do it, though the mere concept of hope hurts. 
There is a vulnerability in caregiving, and there is an exhaustion. But what I love about the story in Mark is that when Jesus heals the paralytic, we're able to see how he heals the caregivers too. When he heals the paralytic and the paralytic walks out, the lives of the man's caregivers are dramatically and forever altered. Their day-to-day life has changed. They have been healed too. And I'd go so far as to say that the internal work, that work of forgiveness that Jesus offered the paralytic, that's something that touches the caregivers too. Forgiveness is a turning around from destruction towards life, and that's something that the paralytic, his caregivers, and the crowd all have the opportunity to participate in. It is hope-giving. One man's heart and body was changed by Jesus, but through it, a whole community is rocked. I want to invite us all just to consider a few questions. To consider the roles in the story, the crowd, the paralytic, and the people that carried the paralytic to Jesus. How do each of them interact with Jesus? And how does Jesus affect how they interact with each other? Because all of these things, God is speaking to them, but he's speaking to them in community. And that is how God speaks. Which of these roles do you personally connect with? And ask yourself, why is that? And as you reflect, I want to invite you to invite the Holy Spirit to dialogue with you. There's an old saying, everyone wants to start a revolution and no one wants to wash the dishes. In today's text, we see revolutionary actions from the people that wash the dishes, the caregivers, the people that carried the paralytic to Jesus. In these questions and in today's text, we have an opportunity to reflect on the transformative power that is sometimes wrapped in the mundane, the plain, and the dirty work that is caregiving and care-receiving. And I think there's an invitation from God for us, an invitation to see him in the ordinary and to know that the big, the crazy, the amazing, supernatural work that we see God do in Mark 2, that is accessible in the ordinary day-to-day. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would be with us as we sit in these truths and as we sit in your word minister to our hearts and help us to respond. We love you. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon audio. If you're loving Quest podcast, let us know on Facebook or Twitter by using the hashtag GoToQuest. For more information on Quest, who we are, and what God is doing here, or if you would like to help support Quest financially, please visit us at gotoquest.org. That's G-O-T-O-Quest.org. Thanks for listening.